This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest this week is the author of a very fascinating and disturbing piece in Limestone Post magazine. She is Lori Borman, the writer and editor. Lori, hi, thanks for joining us on Big Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, the article she has written has been headlined 100% American hate groups, Christian nationalism, and the Indiana KKK. The kind of thing we liked to pretend for many years just didn't exist around these parts anymore or anywhere in America. You can go to limestonepostmagazine.com and pull that one up. Lori, Maybe as recently as 10 years ago, most people would have thought the KKK was really a relic of the past, sort of just a blot on the nation's history, and thankfully long gone and nearly forgotten. But guess what? And and especially according to your story, that's not true anymore. What happened? It's kind of a long story. The KKK was very big in the 20s in Indiana, and... um, There's a book out by James Madison, and I listened to him talk about his book called KKK in the Heartland, and it really kind of details what, how prevalent the KKK was in the 20s. And it it got me thinking when I listened to him talk about it, well, what's happened to them? And why, you know, I know there's a lot of division now, but why aren't they big anymore? And For that matter, it was surprising to see how popular it was in the 20s. One in three white Protestant men in Indiana belonged to it. One in three. 33% of the males who purportedly were Protestants, uh, Jesus-loving type people, were members of the KKK. What do you think was the draw of the KKK for them? three things, uh, primarily. One, a a fear of immigrants, a fear of losing your place in society. So they were uh, quite heavily anti-Catholic because they saw immigrants at that time were primarily, you know, from Catholic uh, dominant countries. Right. Um, They were afraid of blacks still replacing white jobs and, and Jews, which is you know, from time immemorial. The big three back then. Uh, Jim's book, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland, that was uh, released by Indiana University Press just last year, 2020. Jim Madison, who is a, a professor emeritus of history at Indiana University, he wrote in that book that some KKK members would show up at church on Sunday mornings in full clan regalia. Can you imagine that? Pretty shocking. And the pictures in the book, there's a lot of pictures in the book of all these different or gatherings. And I think people saw that as very, you know, American to be pro-white Christian America. That helped them to have that kind of view. And they were also part of the temperance movement. So 
that brought along a lot of other people. Wait a minute. Do you mean they were dries? Yes. You know, all these photos we've seen of lynchings and so forth and these party atmosphere type get-togethers where, you know, they're all laughing and having a gay old time at the night while burning a cross or, or hanging a poor soul. This wasn't fueled by alcohol? Well, that was part of their oath. So whether yeah. or not somebody personally believed it, that was just part of it. Here in Indiana, the reach of the KKK went so far as the governor, Ed Jackson, was a prominent member of the KKK, the governor of the state. And at one time, the uh, mayor of Bloomington. Can that possibly be true? How can we possibly believe it? We're the Blue Island in the middle of the red state. We're right. We're good. We're on the proper side of every issue, but apparently not. Apparently not through history. Does someone need to wear a white robe with a hood to be a hater? Well, obviously not. Not anymore. And I think even back then, you still could be a hater without being a part of the Ku Klux Klan. I think that what was so surprising to me was how prevalent it was. And today, it's different. It's not, there are still Ku Klux Klan in Indiana, but there are other groups and spread through different ways than the kind of way that people belonged back then, you know, to a group. You didn't have social media, you didn't have, so it was kind of like a club. In those days, it was almost as though you were declaring yourself to be a member of this gang by putting on the robes, by putting on the hood and all that. It was almost easier to say, oh, there's one, oh, there's another. Today, you could be sitting in a waiting room with four clan members and you have absolutely no idea. True, but you could also tell the number of the white supremacist groups or the racist groups, hate groups, do have symbols, like three percenters, the, um, the Oath Keepers with their orange hats, um, yeah. or Proud Boys with their Hawaiian shirts. You know, there, there are ways that you can still tell some people. There are even these silly hand signals I've noticed. There's the one where the old sign for okay like this, I'm demonstrating to you on our Zoom meeting here, uh, Lori Borman. There are hand signals. It's almost like the old secret handshake type of thing. Sad. And, you know, I'm a scuba diver, and that means that your air is working to do an okay symbol, so I'm really kind of upset that they took that. Honest to gosh, you could be scuba diving and people think you're signaling to another KKK member or Proud Boy or, or what the hell ever they're called. Now, you mentioned Jim Madison's book. You also mentioned a second book, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry's Taking Back America for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. You quoted this from that book, and I'll read it here. Quote, Christian nationalism is fundamentally about preserving or returning to a mythic society 
in which traditional hierarchical relationships, e.g. between men and women, whites and blacks, are upheld, and the authority structures are biblical and just. You know, the funny thing is, that view of piety in the Bible, most of us pretended it didn't exist anymore until just a very few recent years ago. I wonder, do you have an idea, how did the adherents of this kind of thinking keep that line of thought alive while essentially hiding it from general society for maybe 30 or 40 years? These people kept this under wraps for the longest time. How did they keep that train of thought alive while hiding it from the rest of general society? Or did they? And I'm not sure that they did. Uh-huh. I think maybe there have been groups all along but who have purported that, who have um, supported it. And I think what we have now is a really interesting and sad situation of a crisis with COVID, with lost jobs, with people feeling marginalized or displaced, perhaps by immigrants, perhaps by um, they're worried about their place in society. So they go back to what they think is the, um, as you'll hear from these white Christian nationalists, is that it's a, it's how our country was founded. It's kind of deceiving because you think when you hear it, oh, yay, Christians, yes, that's America. It's not being anti-Christian to be um, against this Christian nationalist movement. That's where there's a big divide in that. There's a lot of people, according to his book, that are devoutly Christian, but they're not in support of those ideals. Yet these ideals, this Christian white nation ideal, really in a large sense, hey, let's face it, that was the growth of America from early on. It was white men, landowners, who were the beneficiaries of the freedoms of America. Well, and I think it goes back to Thomas Jefferson. You know, he is writing, you know, all men are created equal, except when it comes to black people. That And he was really one of the first to start writing about black people as being not really quite equal to white people. Because if he didn't do that, then it upset the entire capitalist system and, and how most of these men that were currently in power could stay that way. Even though there was already beginning a movement in the UK for against slavery. The UK abolished slavery well before we did. In the early 1800s, absolutely. As did other nations uh, eventually, too. And uh, we were among the latecomers to that. We and Brazil and uh, a few other Western Hemisphere nations, uh, we said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, this slavery business is a little bit too much important to our economy. Exactly. Indiana, it's where we live, like it or not, 
a lot of people take it as a matter of faith that Indiana was a, if not the, center of the KKK in America. You know, people talk to people, they still link the town of Martinsville, and that's just 20 miles north of us here in Bloomington, to the KKK. Is there any truth to this characterization? Not what I saw in Madison's book. Really, he he talks about, I mean, Kokomo had the biggest parade and gathering of the KKK, not Martinsville. Wow. Uh, I mean, when you're talking about one-third of the population and the governor is part of it, it's going to be everywhere. Yeah. So it certainly was a part. Professor Madison says that no lynchings were a part of the KKK in Indiana, that Indiana was not the same as the KKK up the South. Right. It doesn't mean that there weren't lynchings here. There were 18 lynchings according to the Equal Justice Institute's lynching in America map. Huh. And those of those, there were about, you know, half of them were in southern Indiana. So definitely there was... It was beyond just the KKK of this hate and anti-black sentiment and willing to kill people over it. Here's a name that you mention in your article, and our guest this week is Lori Borman. Now, uh, she is a writer and editor and teacher of magazine writing, and she has written this extensive piece for Limestone Post magazine. 100% American, hate groups, Christian nationalism, and the Indiana KKK. In that piece, Lori, you mentioned the name D.C. Stevenson. Who was that? He really is kind of the key person that sold the KKK throughout Indiana. He was a salesman, and he became the grand dragon of the KKK in the 20s. And in some ways, he helped to pull it down because he was a man of, uh, well, he, he attacked a woman that was a state employee, and eventually what he did caused her to, to take poison and kill herself. So he was uh -huh. committed, he was tried and arrested for second-degree murder as well as rape and, and convicted. So... He went to jail in 1925, and the KKK was effectively done in Indiana by 1929, so it took a few years. As you mentioned in your article, he, he had some get-togethers with uh, newspaper reporters while in jail, and he said, oh yeah, this big official is a member of the KKK, and that one is a member of the KKK. He blew the whistle, in other words, and next thing you know, all these guys are saying, who, me? Uh-uh, no way. Now, this poor woman who he attacked, did he attack her for her skin color or her religion, or was it just someone like him? He was a sexual predator. Ah. And, um, and she was a young woman, and he enticed her to come to his home, and then he lured her onto a train tr trip overnight. And, and raped her. And then she was so distraught about it that she took some poison and she eventually died of it. So this was not 
in the service of the greater uh, philosophies and thoughts of the KKK. This was just his sickness. Yes. And yet still, that's what helped turn over the KKK. And so for about 20 years, the KKK was essentially nowheresville. And then, according to your story, the KKK tried to rebound in the 1940s. What happened then? The Indiana uh, legislature did not want the KKK to uh, come back. They really, so they passed an anti-hate law, which was pretty strong, and, it, and that legislation helped to keep, to keep the KKK out. But in, uh, I believe it was in the 70s, early 70s, a man who was a Nazi sympathizer tested that by putting, he was putting out leaflets on cars and he challenged it, and the ACLU took his case up because it was really freedom of speech. You know, it was too broad of a law. So it, it was challenged, and, and so the law was rescinded. Now I'm going to put it to you for your personal thoughts. You've done the research on this. You've read the books. You've seen the reports. You've talked to the activists and organizations. Do you think that hate speech should be regulated or even forbidden by law? That's a tough question. I mean, I'm a journalist, and I believe in free speech, and I believe that people should be able to express opinions what we have in our country is that you can't incite people to violence. That's really where it counts. What's happened is with social media in particular, uh, people feel so free because they're anonymous often to just yeah. say the worst things. And it's so it's brought the worst out of us in many ways. I was just noticing today the Anti-Defamation League put out a report that the white supremacist propaganda, print propaganda, was the highest in 2020 than it's been in a decade. Of So this is actual physical propaganda mm -hmm. that's it being put out. And they said if they put if they tried to include what happened, you know, online to be like in the millions. So you look at that and it's, it just, you can't say that that's not really spreading and being a problem. But I think in terms of actually speaking, people should be able to say, you know, speak their mind in a, hopefully in a rational way. This sort of ties in with a very recent incident uh, in our nation this week, uh, a young man in Atlanta, uh, opened fire at several locations where Asian-American women worked and killed about eight people. I think eight is the latest number of fatalities in this attack. And a lot of people might make the argument that nobody said to him, go out and kill Asians. But the overall atmosphere of Asian hatred, because 
the, the storyline goes, they brought this pandemic to us. It's the uh, Kung flu, as our former president described it, that that kind of stuff actually inspires people to hurt or to kill. That's why that has to be left to um, a judge who's far more versed in the law than I am. Right. <laughs> say what, what actually constitutes um, hate speech that incites. Overall, Lori, hate crimes have been going up in recent years, as you have found. And you spoke with Jada B. of Black Lives Matter Bloomington for your piece. You basically asked her, what about this going up business of hate crimes? And she said, and this is a quote from your story, we're not talking about history coming back. We're talking about a continuation of the marginalization of African-Americans, indigenous people, and other people of color. We're not talking about a revival. Racism has always been there. So we were fooling ourselves for many years that this kind of thing was gone and past. Well, and I think that's what um, we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. I mean, when you really analyze it, you realize, uh, you mentioned earlier about, oh, Bloomington is the little blue island, but we also had sunset laws in Indiana, as, as J.W. mentioned to me, and a student couldn't walk across campus or walk across town to where most of their apartments were, which were on the west side of Bloomington, after dark. We think we're so far past that. We think we're centuries past that, but yet it's within the lifetimes of people who are still alive today. That's correct. Now, you also talked about a gentleman by the name of Alvin Rosenfeld in your story in the Limestone Post that uh, says that uh, there was, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of anti-Semitism affiliated with the KKK. They they didn't like black people. They didn't like Catholics. Professor Rosenfeld, who is, uh, teaches uh, Jewish studies at Indiana University, says there are two kinds of anti-Semitism, and uh, this is interesting. There's sort of a casual anti-Semitism that he calls social anti-Semitism. That means you just don't like or you feel revulsed by the Jews. But then there's a political anti-Semitism, and that is the fear, the irrational fear that the Jews are taking over the country, the banks, the media. Well, it's a long-standing thing, unfortunately. I, I don't know if you'd seen in recently that the uh, Congress, there at one of the guard stations, there was an open book. Someone had a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a historic uh, anti-Semitic tract, which mentions those exact things. Jews are going to, here's how they're going to take over the world. Here's how they're going to take over business. Here's how they're going to take over finance, the banks. Here's how they're going to take over the media. Man. And it's still around. <laughs> it's still here. No space for hate. They monitor, uh, according to their research, some 31 online hate groups that are active in Indiana. And this includes the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Based on what you've read and what you've researched, does that make Indiana unique among the states? Uh, because no space for hate is monitoring 
mean? No, because there are 31 online oh. groups active here in this state. Are we no. the biggest state? No, unfortunately. <laughs> no, we're not. That just shows you how bad it is across the United States. So there are a number of groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Equal Justice Institute, and the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, who monitor this stuff nationally. And they do a great job for a big picture, but they can't be as detailed and monitor in the way that like No Space for Hate Bloomington does. And the same thing, they cannot monitor in the same way that Black Lives Matter Bloomington looks at things because they're right here. They right. see what's going on. They hear from people about what's happened where. R.G. Reynolds was particularly helpful to me in kind of showing what's going on because of the work that they are doing at No Space for Hate. Now you have immersed yourself in this field uh, to write this article that's in the limestone post are you discouraged or do you have any optimism after doing this piece it can be discouraging i mean i think it's discouraging if you i don't know how the researchers do it because i couldn't look at that stuff all the time and right see how people are talking all the time. I actually really try to do a good, um, separate myself from a lot of that in how much I'll look at social media. But the positive thing is I think the things that these different groups are all trying to do. And so education is the main focus for Black Lives Matter. For anti-Semitic groups that are, you know, against anti-Semitism, they have more what Dr. Rosenfeld said, a four-pronged approach, like, yes, we need legislation. Yes, we need strong leadership. Yes, we need to speak up. Elie Wiesel, a famous Holocaust writer and Holocaust survivor, talked about that educational component and was actually a little discouraged at the end of his life because all the education that he had done had not quite moved people. Being vigilant about what's going on with social media, which is where No Space for Hate is working. We can't just hide our heads in sand. You can't just say, oh, this is too hard for me. That's not going to help anybody. And even, even though sometimes we have to do that for our own sanity, at least for a night, say, or a week, we have to separate from it. There's a difference, though, between taking a, a mental break and letting somebody, the next time somebody makes a racist statement in front of you, the important thing is to say, hey, you know, that's not okay. I'm not, I'm not all right with that comment. And we have to speak up. Lori Borman is a writer and editor. She has written the lead story currently on Limestone Post Magazine. You go to limestonepostmagazine.com and it'll be there. It's a story about hate groups, Christian nationalism, the Indiana KKK. Lori, the fight goes on. Thanks so much for joining us on Big Talk. Thank you for having me.